This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And over the next hour, we're going to talk about the big money issues in the world of sports and, of course, talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Later on, I catch up with Duke Athletic Director, the incoming new AD at Duke, Nina King. But first, we're going to chat with Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment President Scott O'Neill. He's got a brand new book out called Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. Lots to talk about with this book, but for those of you who don't know, Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, they own the Philadelphia 76ers. Kind of an important team in the NBA right now. End of this game with a 218 mark. There's a steal by Hill. He'll run it with Milton. He'll take it inside. And it's an 11-0 Sixers run. Of course, the process seems to be working. Uh, famously, what they have undertaken there with that storied franchise. Scott, really good to catch up with you. It's a busy time, I know. How you doing? Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Mike. I'm excited. Uh, looking to dig in. We're in the, uh, you know, kind of the... The throes of a heavy playoff run. I know you're from Atlanta. Mike, you were, you were dismissed and at the beach from Boston. <laughs> but for those of us in Philadelphia, we are, we're getting after it. It's been a lot of fun. So, Scott, you obviously are in the building for these games. And the best news, I think, for all of us is you got a lot of people there with you uh, in the building. Take us inside this franchise from a business perspective and what it means to have fans back in the seats and, and really just the, the new feel, the new look after a very tough year. I appreciate it. You know, a year ago, I was in the bubble in Orlando and remember going to a couple games and being the only fan. And while that was uh, quite a novelty and interesting and something I'll never forget, it's just nothing I ever want to repeat again. And then the start of this season... You know, to be in an arena at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia and our Prudential Center, of course, in Newark, and be one of 15 fans, you know, essentially our staff, uh, where you could hear everything the coach said, everything players said, everything officials said. It was a, it was fun and interesting for the first 10 games, and but I just missed the buzz. I missed the energy. I missed the cheers, even the booze. Uh, and, then, and then we got to 25%, and that, that was, you know, it was, it was good. It felt better. You know, I, I felt like some enthusiasm. When it got to 50%, 50% in Philly is, you know, 110% in most arenas. I mean, these fans are chomping at the bit. And, I, I, and then, you know, last game we went up to full capacity, and I felt like the, the ceiling was going to blow off the building. It was just special. Um, you know, you, 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 you just take a step back um, for a minute and think about what we've been through to get here. And, um, and that, that's what gives you the chills. Uh, you know, obviously we have two transformational superstars in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, which is wonderful, and, and the fans respond to them. Um, but to think, you know, only a few short seasons ago we were winning 10 games and people were catcalling and screaming at us uh, every game, and we had a lot of pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that journey, those life lessons, all that learning that we went through, um, 
you know, makes this just all that much more, you know, special. And I, I'm grateful. I feel blessed. I think everybody in this organization does. And, uh, and something I think the organization has earned and deserved, which has been, been really rewarding. Hey, Scott, it's Mike up here in Boston. We, of course, had Doc Rivers up here. He won a championship for us, took us to another finals, uh, seven games against the Lakers. What has he meant to your franchise and this team and this whole process? You know, you had him up there long enough to know that he's an elite leader um, and, and maybe only exceeded by the quality of human being he is. Um, he understands the game at a really high level, builds a world-class team, has the utmost trust and confidence of his players, and he seems to make the right tactical adjustments at the right time. Um, but, but for me, um, I just see leader, leader, leader. That's all I see when I see him. Um, it's, it's how he walks. It's how he talks. It's who he is at his core. Um, it's the, the kind of the positions he's taken on, on social issues to stand for what's right and stand up and be an example. And we can't ever forget that the young men coming into this league are young men, sometimes 18, 19 years old. And I think he helps quite a bit in the maturation process. And, uh, and I think that really matters. He's a special human being. You know, Scott, as you think across the course of this season, and you, you did a nice job, you know, sort of giving us the, the numbers and in terms of the, the capacity piece, there were a lot of key decisions that had to be made along the way in, in terms of getting basketball back to where we are to experience these playoffs. You know, given your experience with the league, you know, in the league office, now given your experience with a specific franchise, what do you look back on as sort of the key business decisions that had to be made in order to get us to this point, you know, kind of between the bubble and now? Uh, I think they're going to be different for every organization. Ours was was pretty simply, um, you know, we had, a, you know, everybody had a lot of pressure on us, um, you know, in terms of my peers in this business financially. I mean, yeah. we were losing, you know, uh, truckloads of money and uh, and it was, uh, you know, that, that put a lot of pressure and stress on the org. Um, you know, we didn't have liquidity issues. A lot of my peers had liquidity issues and were scrambling for financing and working through the league and banks. And, you know, we're fortunately well-heeled and, and uh, had plenty of liquidity, so we didn't have the issues that some had. But our big, our, our big stake we put in the ground and bet we made 14 months ago was that we were going to keep the sales and marketing machine together. And that that was after much debate and much consternation and conversation and and at the end, you know, it's just it's too hard to build a, a machine this this big and this talented. Quite frankly, a present company excluded, of course. Um, but this is about you know, can you keep your can you keep your your ticket sales team in place? Can you keep your sponsorship team in place? Uh, we actually added to our sponsorship team, at, you know, at a time where I talked to one of my one of my peers and he had his staff down to thirty people. And um, and I just said, hey, I'm not I'm not doing it. It's gonna you know your rebound will take five years, seven years because by the time you hire, you know it just um, the way the numbers work, you know just in ticket sales, just to put it really plainly, a first year ticket first year ticket rep will sell about a hundred thousand dollars. You know, second year one hundred seventy five, third year three hundred fifty. Then it depends on how well how good your team is and what the pricing is. I mean, you can have million dollar sales reps by year four or five, and. Uh, and if you blow that up and start over, you're starting all the way back at ground zero. And I just wasn't, I didn't think that was the prudent thing to do. So we kept the team in place. Uh, we lost some through attrition. And when people left, we didn't replace them. So it did strain the org a bit. So we lost about 20% of the team overall over the course of a year, um, which isn't out of 
sorts to our typical attrition, and 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 we've got a V-shaped recovery. So we're we're looking at a stronger 21-22 than we had as a pre-COVID 19-20. So it, it, the bet has paid off for sure. But that was the key decision in terms of getting us back in the you know back fans back in the arena. That that's a part of our jobs are working with governors and mayors. You know, and and between Ross Baraka in Newark and Governor Murphy in Trenton. And then uh, Mayor Kenny in Philadelphia and Governor Wolf in Harrisburg. You know, we we have we've been really fortunate. We're we're blessed with mayors and governors who understand what's what's at stake. Um, they're valuing safety and health and health and safety protocols. We happen to work with two leagues, the NBA and the NHL. Who, I mean, they couldn't have made it any easier for us. And, hmm. and God bless them. I mean, I think we got 2,000 memos or so, I mean, with different protocols. And as information became new, we were getting new best practices as to how to operate. So it was, a, you know, I guess it was, you know, between us and the government and the leagues. I mean, it's a good partnership and, yeah. and not, not easy. It was very stressful. Um, you know, I'd like to have some of the things I was thinking and saying back for sure. But we're all under so much pressure. And I think at the end of the day, uh, each of those groups um, appreciated and respected each other. We're all working towards a, a common goal, and that is to to kind of let us do what sports and entertainment are meant to do. And, and if if those of us in this business don't understand the why and the purpose for why we exist or what we do or why we work so hard and late as we do, it's because our role is to bring people together. Right. Our role is to create community and create connection. And the one thing that's missing right now it's just that. So, so I, I think, um, so the long answer to a short question, but, but, uh, it's been quite a journey. All right. So Scott, as, as you, I'm sure have the same experience as we do, you read a lot of books, a lot of things come across your desk. And so I go straight to the table of contents. I often don't read it, um, in linear order. Sorry. I had to go straight to trust the process the the last chapter of the book, um, Talk to me about the book and specifically how you sort of crystallized that idea in there because it's something that has become a mantra, a calling card, I mean, an emblem in many ways of the Sixers franchise. It sure has. Um, you know, I remember when I was the president of Madison Square Garden and working with the Knicks and the Rangers and Liberty and college basketball and tennis and boxing and all that stuff. Um, I remember, you know, we had Lynn Sandley when I was there. And, um, and, and these, I call them movements. These movements don't just happen. I mean, I, I, I'm either the, the luckiest man in the world or have just been blessed with the most incredible marketing people in the world. And I think it's the latter. You know, I've, I've been around some amazing marketing um, people who've taught me quite a bit about how to create movements. And Lynn Sandley was a movement. It was just short-lived, you know. And that, that was my biggest regret. I mean, he obviously got hurt and then, then went on to, to play for the Rockets and never returned. But that, that hysteria where you as an organization, uh, you feed the beast. You feel it, you crystallize it, you pick something, um, and then you let everybody else uh, do the work, uh, which takes advantage of the incredible social media platforms and networks that, you know, and the 7.5 billion media members we now have in the world. And so, so I learned quite a bit during during that Link Sanity period. Some some things about what to do, and some things about not what not to do. But that was that was a moment, and that was a movement. And um, and when Chris Heck and I 
came to the 76ers, we both talked about that as um, knowing how hard we were going to have to grind and walking into a situation where we were at the the bottom, the very bottom of every metric in the NBA, uh, from season tickets to sponsorship sales to to brand recognition to ratings to merchandise sales. I mean, just about anything you measure, we were at the bottom or at least in the bottom five. And we kept talking about how we how we create a movement. And then you know we we were really fortunate. We were we were watching a, a post game, and Tony Roten said the famous words. You know, coach coach Stanton tells us trust the process. And Chris and I were texting each other. We both got on the phone. Like I think that's it. And um, and we, we spent a lot of time thinking about how how this becomes a movement. And and the fans owned it, which was good. I mean, you never saw that from our organization. I mean, you 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 very rarely have seen trust the process from us. Recently, we put some stuff out on social, but and, and we did some hidden mickeys and all, and some of the creatives, which our designers did. But but this was by and for the people, and it blew up. I mean, it, it became a, a badge of honor. I mean, I I was in Shanghai wearing some Sixers stuff, and I heard trust the process and that <laughs> very thick Chinese accent several times. I, I heard in London too. I mean, it, this is everywhere I've been from South Philly to, to South London to Shanghai. I say, uh, so that that part has been pretty awesome. Control freaks have problems because you can't control much anymore. You know, you can guide, you can keep it on the rails. Um, so there were some some touch and go moments with trust the process that that didn't turn very positive. You know, we had a lot of pressure. We had media pressure and league pressure and peer pressure from other teams and organizations and fan pressure and pressures in our own homes. Um, but we had so much conviction for what we were trying to do and trying to accomplish and the vision we had to create a team that could compete for a championship for a decade, which seems to be playing itself out now, which is pretty fun. Now it's eight years later, and it was a grind. And, um, you know, the question is, could anyone do it again? I, I don't know. Um, at that point, we just we didn't have much of a choice. We had a a cap roster with two first-round draft picks in the next five years and, and no real young talent to speak of. Um, and, and we were so bad business-wise. And we become somewhat irrelevant, not only in the city of Philadelphia, where some people were arguing that we were the fifth of five teams behind even the, uh, the union, the, the MLS club, in terms of popularity, uh, which we look, look, look forward now. And I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say we're not one or two in the city right. And we're one of the most relevant teams in the world. I mean, you just look at our interest in China right now, fourth most followed team in China. So I, I think, you know, if you, what, what I'd like everyone to think about and how that applies to, to you or me is I think this world we're living in is very much one of 15 seconds of fame. Um, and so this is about the, you know, am I, am I Insta famous? Am I TikTok famous? You know, did I... Did I post something that blew up or, you know, and I, I just want everyone to just look out a year or three years or five years and figure out what you want to accomplish or what you want to do or who you want to be. And then write a plan, have the discipline to stick to that plan um, and write it into your calendar and work on it. You know, I've, I've, I've been, I spent a lot of time with a lot of young people, including my daughters. And I'm often saying like, there's nothing you can't achieve. I mean, there, there certainly isn't. There, there's nothing on that list. You know, whatever you can think of, you can achieve if you're willing to work for it. Um, and that, that's that's the missing piece. You know, the the vision. We're all just staring at that tree right in front of us, and we need some vision. 
Then we need a plan, and we say, okay, I'm going to give it an hour a day. Okay, I'm going to give it two hours a day. Okay, I'm going to give it 15 hours a day, whatever, depending on what the situation is and how long lead it is. But, uh, but there's an opportunity to, to do really special things. Trust the process would be a, a, a easy sell to an expansion franchise, but this is Philadelphia, some of the toughest fans in the world, and it, it's amazing you've been able to pull it off. I, I noticed that you know right at the genesis of this trust the process was Sam Hankey, uh, who's an analytic guy, which we normally associate with the sport of baseball. Tell me how the analytics works in the NBA, and is it something that is league-wide right now, or you have cornered the market on it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a league-wide. I mean, I, I, I remember, I think it was Charles Barkley who said, you know, uh, analytics, or, you know, analytics will never work in basketball, you don't understand a team, et cetera, et cetera. I, I guess my view is, is that, you know, like in any business or, or anything you're doing, if you could have data that could help you make better decisions faster, would you take that data or not? I mean, that's the question you have to ask yourself. It's a binary question, yes or no. If you don't want more information, then you go off and do your thing. If you want information, which I, I would imagine most reasonable, smart, driven, ambitious people want, right? They want an edge. Um, then you start to invest infrastructure, in infrastructure and people and software and, and figuring out what, what matters and what makes a difference in winning and losing. And so, so for me, um, you know, it's a pretty simple resource allocation uh, question and a really simple answer. Uh, but, but no, we haven't cornered the market. Everybody, there's some really, really, really incredibly smart teams doing incredibly smart work. You know, Scott, I jumped right into Trust the Process <laughs> earlier in the conversation, but I did want to just take a step back because, you know, it's an interesting moment for you to write this book in in many ways. You've obviously learned a lot, but you're, I mean, this is not a valedictory in, in many ways. You've got a lot more work to do. So why now? Was was there a catalyst to do this now? Yeah, there sure was. Um, and one of my best friends in the world took his own life a couple of years ago. And I was standing on the, you know, on the, you know, on the podium, on the front of the church, and looking at his kids, five kids, and thinking, like, he's never going to teach them a lesson. He's never going to um, share any of the things he's learned. He's, you know, and, and that spiraled me into a pretty dark place, to be quite frank with you. Um, and I, I think a lot of us, and hopefully not you two, but a lot of your listeners, I imagine, went through some of what I experienced um, during COVID. Um, you know, I think anxiety and mental health are at an all-time high and low. And, um, and I think, so, so that's, that's the impetus, like, to, um, and then I feel like, my, you know, I'm, I just turned um, 50 last year, so I'm 51 years old. And, I'm, you know, I think at this point in my life, I have a pretty good sense of what I'm good at and where I struggle. And, and one thing that, that I feel like is my purpose, my, my um, mission, if you will, is to help create the next great generation of leaders in this space. And, and if I can do that by sharing some, some stories, some anecdotes of things that went wrong, I think that can help some people. This, this is not a victory lap book. This isn't, hey, we won the championship. Let me show you a picture of me going you know, on a parade route down Broad Street. This is quite the opposite. This is about that life is messy and that I make mistakes and I got fired from my job at MSG and I ran Hoops TV as internet company startup into the ground 
and I've had lost my best friend, and I've had challenges with my with my family. I mean, that that's what this is about, and it, because I think that's where the learning takes place. And so I, I hope if this helps one person who lost their job or ran a company into the ground or had an issue or has a mental health issue and, and wants to get help, that that maybe this is a, you know what, it's going to be okay. I'm in the eye of the storm. I understand I'm in the eye of the storm, but I'm going to be okay. And if it's someone out there that's listening or reading this book and they say, like, okay, I, it's okay, I can get help. Um, because I think that I think the world needs it. We need we need each other right now. We need to be more aware when things are going well for us, and we need to raise our hand when things aren't going so well. Uh, we need connection. Um, but so I, so I think that's you know it's a, again another another long answer to a short question, but but quite a bit. I I hope um, that your listeners read the book. I really do, and I and I hope of them that they'll take one nugget out of there that'll help transform who they are. And, and that they aspire to be the best version of themselves they can be. Scott, we had a guest on about a year ago in the middle of COVID, and he had a, a great line that stuck with me. The comeback is always stronger than the setback. Is that sort of frame who you are right now? Yes, maybe. Uh, my, my perspective is slightly different. I would say that we are the product of the people who have come into our lives, the experiences we've had, and who we aspire to be. And, and we're some amalgamation of that. Um, and I, so, so yes, in, in my particular sense, I am stronger because of some of the experiences I've had and the setbacks I've had. And, um, and I, I, I wish that I was the exception and that I just had a rough road. But I can tell you when I was 22 years old, looking up at the top of that mountain, I'm like, I'm going straight up and I'm sprinting up. You can put a piano on my back, it's not gonna matter. I'm going to the top and I'm going fast. And instead, you know, I tripped, I fell, um, I ran into a tree. You know, I mean, everything along that journey that I thought was going to be smooth and easy. And you could look at me from the outside and say, are you kidding me? This guy has it all. And by the way, I love my life. I'm happy with who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I know, you know, what I, what I did well and what I don't do so well. And I know where I have to grow. But I can tell you all my learning took place in one time, and that's not when I was standing at the top of the mountain doing my Rocky dance. You know, it's, it's like you get up there, I tell you what, and you start looking around, it gets a little lonely, for one. And secondly, you look down the mountain, you're like, okay, well, that's where all the fun was. Like, that's where the learning was. That's where the opportunity was. That's where the connection was. And then you look out, and I'm just looking for another mountain to climb. And so I, I think that, that if you're young and you're listening to this, I just want you to, to think about, um, the opportunity you have to keep things in perspective, to obviously set, you know, ambitious, audacious, big, incredible goals. Do that. You know, commit yourself to the work. Make sure that you're connecting with people. Like, this, just so, I have, a, you know, a quick story. Um, you know, when I was with the Nets, I was just a kid. I was 22 years old. I was a marketing assistant. Like, most of the people in the organization thought I was an intern because I was, like, going to get lunch for people, you know, and... um and I, I look around and, you know, Brett Yormark worked there. And the guy's one of the great executives in sports right now. And Howie Newchow, and Brett's at Rock Nation now, but built the Barclays Center. And Howie Newchow is, uh, you know, running CAA Sports. I mean, these are two young guys. We were all young. But, um, and they're two of my, my dear friends. And I, I just wonder, like, um, you know, maybe I lucked into that. But I, all the people I talked to in our, um, round tables when they come into this organization, the young folks, I'm like, hey, look around. We've got 2,000 people in this organization. Can you imagine if 20 years from now, they're all your friends still? 
because they're going to run the business. Like my friends are running the business of sports around the world. Like how cool is that? And how much easier does business get and deals get? But you've got to invest and not in a Machiavellian way, in a way that says like, I'm connecting with people because it's part of who I am and I'm willing to give not to get. Um, and I think if more of us did that in, in the intention, our, the purity of our heart was around helping others and staying connected and being part of this ecosystem, I think your, your careers get bigger faster. That's a benefit. And you have a lot more friends and it's a lot more fun. Yeah. And, and Scott, you, you know, you're talking about something that, that I find so fascinating when, you know, when you talk about this ecosystem that, that you're clearly a part of and, and that you've sort of grown up in. It does feel like we are at this moment, and and you know we've talked a lot about the NBA, but I'm going to keep talking about the NBA because I think we're all so fascinated with it. I mean, there is a level of professional management and sort of a a buttoned upness, as it were, to this league right now, as well as a an ambition that feels fresh and new and and urgent in a way. And I wonder, as someone who has watched this league develop, as someone who, you know, was mentored by David Stern, you know, what what catalyzed that in, in your mind? Like, how has the NBA achieved that? Because of all these things that you're talking about and sort of the whole human and athletes and relationships, it does seem to be crystallized in the NBA, maybe more than in other sports. And I wonder if you agree, and, and, and if so, why that is. Yeah, you know, when I was, at, I was at Harvard Business School for my MBA, and um, I remember trying to fight, 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 fight when I first got there. I was going to prove everybody wrong. I didn't believe that I belonged there. I was never the smartest kid in the room, and and I believe they made some mistake. And so I was just going to fight. Like, meaning I was just going to prove everybody that I was smart enough, tough enough, resilient enough, would work hard enough, I could do it. And, and what I realized was I looked around the room, and there were a lot of smart people there, people a lot smarter than I was. And, and there were a lot of people who, from a financial modeling end, could, could uh, work circles around me. And um, there are a lot of people that, from, the, from you know, the McKinsey's and Bain's of the world, that could model, like, circles around me. And then every professor, the dean, Dean Clark, came in. Everyone we talked to, every administrator kept saying, like, look around this room. Okay, these are your friends. They will help you. When they call you, pick up the phone and help them. If they ask you for a favor, answer the email. These are the people that will change your world every freaking class, every day. That's all we heard. And I think that's a lot like the NBA. Hmm. Like, we, 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 we will fight to the death on the court, um, and we will cheer and scream and shout and create a home court advantage and do everything we can, give us every advantage in terms of resources and health and wellness and nutrition and analytics and er- any possible advantage we'll go take, okay? Off the court, however, we're partners. And that, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful advantage over most leagues. Uh, this is a league that we, we help each other. That's what we do. I mean, we're brought together. Fortunately, Adam Silver, I think, is one of the great leaders of our time, not only in sports, but in, in business. Um, he's uh, wicked smart, as they say, Mike, where you are. Um, <laughs> yep. Smart. And, wicked, and, smart. And, and, wicked smart. Wicked smart. And he's not only wicked <laughs> smart, but he also has this incredible way to connect with people. He understands relationships. He understands the value, the, uh, the value of partnership. Um, and, and so for us that we, 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 we follow the leader here, you know, and he's the leader. And, and I think he's done a wonderful job in creating a platform for us to understand where we fit in the, in the ecosystem, where we, where we fit in the greater game of basketball. So that's the first. Second thing is, is 
there is a vision for, glo- for to have a global game. And, and it's not a simple vision. I mean, you saw what's been rolled out with the Africa Basketball League, which I think is brilliant. I mean, we've seen what's unfolded in China, which is brilliant. And, um, and so, so for those of us fortunate enough to be in this league, and I've been in it almost 25 years now, um, not, not much has changed in terms of how we work with each other. Uh, not much has changed in terms of how we appreciate each other and how we recognize that this is a partnership. Um, but it, it's our, our vision for a, a greater, bigger league keeps getting bigger and greater. It's pretty humbling to be part of. Well, Scott, if you don't help out the Brooklyn Nets, there will not be any tears shed up here in the, in the Boston area. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, one, one thing, it's, 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 um, I have my two nephews, um, Josh and Jared, unfortunately lost their dad a few years ago, so they came out to watch some games. And uh, they're huge fans, and, and I, I love them because they support my teams no matter what. I could, I could go, you know, I went from the Knicks to the Sixers, and they were Knicks fans, and now they're Sixers fans, which I appreciate. But for, for me, um, you know, what I try to explain to them is just like, you know, my friends run the Celtics. Now, I don't like that team, but I love the organization. You know what I mean? Yeah. And my friends run the Nets, and I don't like the team, but I love the organization. My friends run the Knicks. So I don't like the team, but I love, you know, so, it's so strange. You know, you're in this business long enough and you, 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 you lose, you, you have, you have the same edge. It's just your energy is different. And, uh, but yeah, no, the Nets on the court are, they're, they're tough to like, um, but off the court, Joe Sy, he, he built a wonderful organization and, and uh, it's put the resources behind the team that's going to win and it has the right people in place to run the org. So I have a lot of respect for him and his team. For sure. So right now you're chasing the dream. Uh, the process hopefully will culminate uh, for you with an NBA championship. While that's going on, you've got a hockey team up in New Jersey uh, that's sort of rebuilding. I mean, how do you juggle both with your, 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 sort all of your rebuilding. attention? Holy moly. No, this is a full-on process rebuild. Yeah. You know, I just wish we had done it quicker. You know, in, in, in Philadelphia, we ripped the Band-Aid off. You know, we, we yeah. were just kind of unabashedly said, here's who we are. You know who we are. We know who we are. We know where we want to get to. Here's how we're going to get there. Stay with us. Like, that That was the pledge. And in hockey, whether it's just the hockey culture is different or we didn't have the stomach for it or we couldn't do two at the same time or whatever, whatever I start to reconstruct some of, some of where I, I may have uh, could have done a, a more effective job is I just wish we ripped the Band-Aid off. You know, we, we tried to ham and egg it, and it didn't work. And, and now, I will tell you, I fell in love with this team last year. I just fell in love. And that, that's, that's the thing about hockey, you know. Um, and it works in basketball, I guess, too. It's like when, you, when your mom calls and says, is Joe's knee okay? You know you've kind of hit the jackpot, right? So the, yeah. the, when the grandmother test, as I call it, is passed, it's good. Uh, but you you watch you know you watch in the Boston and the Islanders those are some heavy teams I mean they're they're big and strong and heavy and and um, and we are not that yet we're we're young I mean we've got some incredible talent Jack Hughes Nico Hishier, um Igor Sharankovich Jesper Bratt I mean uh, Ty Smith I mean we have I love this young core and if you look, what, we, what we try to do in, in positions and organizations like ours is we try to look at organizations that have built really effectively. And Boston, the Bruins are one of them. The Chicago Blackhawks are another. The L.A. Kings are another. Um, there are some great or, Tampa Bay Lightning. And, and you see how a lot of them have built their young cores through the draft. And then they've built people around them. And they've been patient. Um, and so it's hard, though. I, I will say I have, a, I have a competitive problem. I've got two problems. Uh, competition, I, I, I hate to lose. 
and I eat so many freaking cookies, and I stress eat. It's bad, bad combo. <laughs> but we'll forget about the last two for a while. But, but you know, losing is hard. It's a grind. It's a grind on an organization, and, and you don't want to become losers. You just want to lose games. And I, I believe that this team is ready to make a, make a really big jump next year. I believe we'll, play, we'll be playing meaningful games next year, and uh, you're going to see us start to emerge. And I'm hoping that, you know, if we were having this conversation seven years from now, you'd say, like, wow, this team is a dominant team. Huge fan base, great position, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think you will. Um, and I, I think we're going to emerge a lot quicker than people think. And, um, and we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But it is, it's a different league, of course. You know, in basketball, you're defined by your, your strongest link. And in hockey, you're, you're defined by your weakest link. Mm. And so, you know, how you build a team is very different, of course. And so, Scott, as, as we wrap up here, I mean, I do want to ask you, I mean, you know, going back to – ambition and competition you know that is certainly baked into this company that you know you and and josh harris and and david blitzer obviously two very successful guys in in the private equity world who came together to to sort of put all this together it's ever expanding ever growing you know you've got a a premiership uh, soccer team football team over there in, in crystal palace You've got other interests, uh, including, I believe, in the Premier Lacrosse League. We had Paul and Mike Rabel on the show um, last week. You know, you're sort of both dipping in, but also investing heavily in, in certain areas. You know, if you can distill it down, the the ethos of this company that you guys have built, what is it, and what does that tell us about what's next? Good question. Well, when I got here in uh, 2013, we were a, a basketball team as a tenant in the Wells Fargo Center and practiced in the in PCOM, which is a medical college gym with one one court and four baskets. And we shared that gym with college students. Uh, our locker room had 12 lockers, even though we had 15 players on the ro- roster. And our workout room was about the size of my bathroom at home. Um, so, so what we inherited, and you know, and obviously the team was bad, and the metrics were bad. So, and, and the only thing I could equate it to um, when I was recruiting talent is I said, remember when Tim Lywicki went to the LA Kings? The LA Kings were a tenant in the Forum. That's all they were, and the Forum was dilapidated at the time. It wasn't the Great Western Forum at that point. It was just the Forum. Um, and look, they built AEG. And that was my recruiting tool eight years ago to get some of the best, what I think is the best talent in the world to come and go on this uh, quixotic quest. And I, it's been fun. I, I, I mean, my, my friend, my neighbor called from Connecticut four weeks into my job and said, Hey, would you ever buy the devils? Mike Kramer called. I said, yeah, I just had Josh and David meet Gary Bettman last week. I'd, I'd love to take a look. And, and fortunately, you know, when you have partners like Josh Harris, David Blitz, and don't forget Michael Rubin, who they forced to be reckoned with on, on every level. Um, you've got three of the best deal makers in the history of the world. I mean, it's, you know, that, I don't say that like flippantly. And so, you know, for me, um, it's about setting the strategy and then, you know, they provide the resources. You know, we now have a venture fund. We have got an innovation lab. We built a Grammy museum. We completely reformatted the music business. We bought two theaters. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, built Elevate. I mean, this is a, this is a guy in the esports. Built a $80 million training complex, which I think is the best in the world for basketball. Um, built a real estate business. I mean, I, I, I will say, like, this is, a, this is a fun business. I don't know what it tells you about the future. 
Um, but if, if the past is any predictor, this will be a, a very big business someday. Well, we have really, really enjoyed uh, the time with you. We could talk to you all day because you have your hands in some of the most interesting uh, pockets in the world in many ways. And we're uh, really uh, grateful to you for spending some time, especially uh, in the midst of this playoff run. Scott O'Neill, he is the president of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. And check out his book. It's really, really a, a good read, a thoughtful read. And pretty impossible to to read even a part of it and not come away with something that that sticks with you. It's called Be Where Your Feet Are, Seven Principles to Keep You Present, Grounded, and Thriving. Scott, thank you so much. It was really fun. Jason Lynch, I appreciate you both. Be good. (laughs) Hope to see you soon. So from the pros to the college level, and if you think about the biggest names in college sports and especially college hoops, you got to think about the Duke Blue Devils. Bounces out to Kane with three seconds. He's going to run out of time. And the Blue Devils are the national champions of 2015. So back in 2015, the Coach K-led Duke Blue Devils putting another notch in that championship belt. Uh, one of the storied franchises of all time when it comes to college hoops, that is for sure, but only a part of the sports empire that has been built at Duke University down in North Carolina. Earlier this week, I was able to catch up with Nina King. She is the incoming athletic director down at Duke University. So Nina, it's really good to see you. Tell me a little bit about what, the business of Duke sports looks like as we get back to something resembling normal here? Yes. Well, we're really excited. We just announced that our uh, venues will be at full capacity for this coming year. Um, And so that's great for business. It's great for the fan experience, the student athlete experience to have folks in the stands, football, basketball, lacrosse, baseball, all of it. It's just going to be so wonderful um, and really kind of a sign that we're getting back to normal, whatever normal looks like, um, but exciting, exciting to take that step forward for this season. And so as you look back across the last 14, 16, 18 months, you know, really since this all set in, so many changes in the world, obviously, and not the least of which in the world of athletics, What do you take away from this time in terms of things that may have changed for good? Sure. I mean, I think we've learned a lot of ways to become more efficient. Um, We've learned how to be really good communicators. Um, We're our staff. We're in all different locations at at our homes um, trying to pull off this this year um, and and make it a really great experience for our student athletes to be able to practice and compete um, with a lot of different protocols. But I think, um, you know, I'm I'm really most proud of our, our student athletes for doing everything that we asked them to do in terms of abiding by all of the what seem like numerous um, medical um, health and safety protocols, but then our staff too really was an unprecedented year. We were playing fall sports in the spring and, and having fall sport championships in May, which is, is really not what we're used to. Um, but our staff really came together um, to, to do this for, for our student athletes. And we did it. We're so, we're so grateful. We have one sport still competing um, this week. Uh, women's uh, outdoor track and field is in the NCAA championships this week in, in Eugene. And then we're going to kind of put a, a bow on 21 um, and, and look forward to the fall of, of 21 and 22 competing. So we learned a lot, um, but but I'm most proud of the resiliency of our student athletes, the grit of our staff um, and perseverance and just being able to work together to make this happen. 
So folks in your position and, and your soon-to-be position as athletic director across the country in the United States had to make some tough decisions around, you know, maybe canceling sports, not just temporarily, but but permanently. Some teams have been shut down. Some have been reinstated. There's been a lot of, you know, not a lot, but but a few controversies here and there, most notably maybe at Stanford. What was the process that you guys had to go through in, in that regard, sort of examining the, the economic viability of sports? Sure. I mean, not going to pull weeds in anyone else's garden. And, and those institutions certainly made decisions that they thought were in the best interest of of their um, athletics programs. But, you know, we have 27 sports here at Duke and and we really um try to be as efficient as we can with our, our dollars and good stewards of the university's money um, in running our athletics program. Um, we did have to make some really hard decisions this year in terms of trying to save money. Um, and we had expenses through the roof. Our COVID-related expenses were uh, really astronomical. We were testing our student-athletes every day. Um, we had to think of how we were traveling in different ways than normal. Um, you know, our student-athletes, all students on Duke's campus were in single dorm rooms. Um, we utilized hotels here in the area as well. So all students were in single rooms. So when we traveled, that meant our student athletes had to be in single rooms on the road and in hotels. So our expenses were really astronomical. And then we didn't have traditional revenue streams coming in with no fans in the stands. Um, so we had to, to look, um, look really deep. Where are we going to make this work. Um, and it was difficult, but for us, just philosophically, we didn't want to touch any of our programs, any, any of our student athlete services, um, keeping the student athlete experience, just the pinnacle. I mean, that, that was our priority ensuring that they had a good experience here. Now it did look a little bit different. Um, it was extremely challenging. Again, our people, um, worked their butts off and they did take some personal financial hits. Um, but I'm proud of how we came together to make it work. So this is an interesting, Interesting business, and it's a changing and evolving uh, business as well. And as we enter into kind of a new landscape relative to college athletics with name, image, and likeness on the horizon. Um, it's really going to make us, force us to look at how we can be creative in generating revenue um, and, and you know, keeping expenses down per usual, but really it's going to force us to be creative. All right. You went right where I wanted to go next, which is NIL. I mean, you yeah. look at this through the lens of an administrator, but also as a lawyer. And how did we get here and where does it go in the short term, given that you're in a state that is considering this legislation, but hasn't passed it. The NCAA is considering it, but hasn't come out with anything definitive. And yet several states by this summer will have laws on the books or laws you know, going into, into action. How do you deal, deal with it? help. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. I mean, we're kind of all, how do we deal with it? And it's it's fascinating to me, just all of the, the state-specific legislation and, and when states are coming on board, whether it's this July 1st, next January 23. What, I mean, we're all over the place right now, um, which makes it really hard for us to prepare uh, for the unknown. Um, how we got here, I think, you know, as, a, as an organization, an NCAA organization, we are looking to um, 
we, we want to, to be as nimble and flexible as possible with the student athlete experience. Um, I, at, at Duke, want to ensure that we're providing a modern experience for our student athletes. And so what does that look like? Several years ago, it was cost of attendance and, and providing our student athletes with some additional dollars um, to, to be able to provide, um, you know, extra meals or flights home, uh, whatever that might be. And, and, you know, when cost of attendance was coming on, we had a lot of naysayers and critics um, saying that that was going to get into pay for play and ruin the amateur mo model were just fine. Um, and we were able to provide some extra resource for our student athletes. Same thing with name, image, and likeness. You know, traditionalists are, are going to go straight to this is pay for play and how can we be doing providing our student athletes with money? Um, I am in favor of it. And, you know, as long as we can do it with the appropriate guardrails um, and again, create a modern experience for our student athletes and stay flexible, a little bit more permissive, um, we're going to be okay. Okay, as long as we, again, we figure this out. So that's the next part, preparing for what we're not quite sure, um, but ensuring that we are prepared to educate our student athletes, our coaches, our boosters, um, you know, when, when we do have some form of the rules. What I really do hope is that as an NCA, we can get some NCA legislation that applies to all of our institutions, our Division One institutions equally, so that we're not kind of, you know, state specific and and all over the place um, with different rules that apply to publics and privates and you know schools in North Carolina versus South Carolina. I mean, has that has a chance to be um, disastrous. So I do hope that NCA legislation comes down the pike here pretty quickly. Yeah, and so what are you hearing? And you know, I mean, what what are people talking about in terms of the viability of that? Because you know, I've spent some time with Senator Chris Murphy. You know, he's got some legislation at the federal level, uh, as you know, uh, that that is at least going to be considered at some point. Is this the NCAA's to solve? What what's the right mechanism here? I think you have a lot of us NCAA college athletics administrators working really hard to get something um, here in the pike this summer. Um, I, I hope. Um, that we can get there and, and agree on some some legislation again that will apply uniformly across NCAA Division One institutions um, here quickly. Um, I, other than that, I can't prognosticate what you know what states um, are going to be you know ready to go by this July first. But I hope again for the good of our student athletes, um, for our coaches. I mean, it's going to be impossible to recruit if we've got uh, if we've got all kinds of different laws and, and rules and regulations. So just for the sake of everybody involved in this collegiate athletics enterprise, I do hope we can get something done here quickly this summer. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about the current athletic landscape is something you have a, a lot of experience with which is equality between men's sports and women's sports. And, and keep me honest here, I believe you were the, the chair of the women's basketball committee that did all the selections and was deeply involved in that. And you remain on that committee. We saw some pretty gross inequalities like right out there on social media this past March as we got into the tournament. Are we at a point where we are starting to address these sorts of inequalities and, and what needs to happen? Absolutely. It was horrific and embarrassing um, what we were providing for those female student athletes that had worked so hard to get to the national championship uh, tournament. And, and, you know, just those inequalities were were terrible. Um, and it's detrimental to it, not only those 64 teams that were, lived in that moment um, in, in San Antonio, but I think to the women's basketball community and to really female sports all over our, our country. Um, we are working very hard to address it with the NC 
NCAA, um, you know, we're undergoing the gender equity review with Kaplan Hecker, the firm that, that the NCAA has retained to kind of do a deep dive here, not just in the women's basketball championship, but for all of our female sports in the under the NCAA umbrella. Um, excuse me, but what I think it did do is really peel back um, the onion on some things here and, and gives us all as collegiate athletics administrators an opportunity to say, are we doing things the right way for our female student athletes? Are we ensuring that they are having um, an equal experience to their male counterparts on our campuses, in our conference offices, and then certainly at the NCAA level? So while at the time it was um, a real, um, you know, embarrassing and, and what are we going to do and how can we address this quickly in the short term to fix it for those 64 teams that were at that championship, what are we doing long term to ensure that this does not happen again? Unfortunately, we've been at this point before. Um, we've had several white papers written on women's basketball and equality, um, and we just didn't move forward um, with suggestions and, and ensuring that, that we didn't get to this point. I think everyone's eyes have really been opened at this point, um, and there's just so many of us that are committed to ensuring change happens, um, which is a good thing. And so, you know, it, it also leads into this interesting discussion about athletes sort of owning their own activism in many ways. And I know that that's something you've been involved in on a number of different levels. You know, I think about the, the Rubenstein being ACE program that I believe you're deeply involved in with a mutual friend of ours, David Rubenstein, I believe, providing some of the funding there. It feels like a different moment in terms of what we expect of athletes and maybe the role that they expect to play in the broader social and, and cultural conversations. That's something it feels like we took away from 2020. Do you agree? And, and how do you cultivate that in a way that's ultimately productive? Absolutely. Our student athletes are using their voices and we wholeheartedly support that. Um, we want to provide them with platforms to amplify their voice and their mission and what they stand for. And I think it's really exciting um, that these student athletes, you know, are, are looking at that big picture. Um, they're not coming to our schools just to play sports and go to school. They really are coming in, um, learning how to be leaders and going out into the world to be global change makers. It's so exciting. Um, and you touched on the Rubenstein being um, athlete um, civic engagement program that we have. It's things like that. Um, Duke and Stanford, we partnered together six years ago um, to send 40 student athletes, 20 Duke and 20 Stanford student athletes um, around the world to do civic engagement. And that's a program that's really changed some of our kids' lives. Um, they're going out and, and um, like I said, learning how to become change makers in, in the world, which is really exciting. So we support our student athletes. We, we love um, that they use their voice voices and, and for good and for change. All right. So as we wrap up here, I got to ask you about the biggest news at Duke, which is you're going to take over on September 1st as the athletic director and you will oversee the last season of, of arguably the most legendary coach uh, currently working in college basketball, uh, maybe in basketball overall, Coach K, handing off the reins. How do you manage that as an athletic director? How do you anticipate that handoff going? Obviously, you know, Coach Shire, everyone is talking about, you know, him being the successor, but th this is a moment in time that we won't soon forget. How do you do it? <laughs> also help. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, it's never been done before. Um, coach Krzyzewski is the most iconic coach, and I would argue in sport in the world, um, and not just men's basketball. Um, so this handoff is, is something that's never been done before. Um, but we're really excited. We're excited for this year to celebrate his legacy, his commitment to Duke, um, and, and everything that he's built and created here. It's going to be really exciting. And then John Shire is right here. And so the, the seamless transition will happen in April of 22. Um, and we're all ready to hit the ground running with John as our next head men's basketball coach at Duke. So to be determined, to be seen um, in terms of, of how we handle and <laughs> handle this year, but it's going to be really exciting and a big celebration. So I do have to ask you just in the wake of that news, which I guess isn't surprising. I mean, it bounced so high. I mean, it was one of these things where it's like every major news organization was sending out alerts, which just sort of underscores the the iconic nature, as you say, of Coach K. What was the most surprising thing for you if there was something kind of in in the aftermath of that, of the announcement? Welcome to the job. And now we have a coaching transition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't think anything was surprising. You know, I've been here for 13 years and I have had a sideline seat to watch Coach K and, and um, watch him do his his magic on the sidelines. And so um, since I've been deeply involved with the operations of our department for the past 13 years, I can't say there wasn't there was anything extremely surprising about the moment um, that we lived last week. I'm just so grateful that I've been able to be a part of it um, and that it's not over yet. Yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, you know, much has been made and rightly so of, of the historic nature of you taking on uh, this athletic director role. You're one of, unfortunately, a very small number of women and women of color who have ascended to athletic directorships in the NCAA and, and certainly in, in Power Five. Um, I know you feel a certain responsibility around this. How does that manifest itself as we get into this next season, as you get into the job? Sure. I'm excited. I'm excited about it. Um, I'm excited to be a role model for young kids everywhere, um, uh, boys and girls, um, uh, young children of color, um, to show them, you know, you can you can achieve your dreams. Um, so make sure you you dream big and and you know reach for the stars. Um, and then I'm excited for folks in our business, young people coming up in our business that do eventually want to be athletic directors. You can do it. Um, as you alluded to, there are very few of us, um, which is is not great, but I'm excited to be a part of progress and now excited to be a part of um, a, a group of folks working towards change, making it better. All right, Nina King, really good to spend some time with you. Uh, you got a big job on your hands. Best of luck uh, with you. that. Can't wait to see uh, what, what's going on and what's happening down at Duke. Thank you. Thank you. So, Lynchy, kind of a packed show this week between yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's going on down in Philly and Newark, I guess. I was glad we got to talk a little hockey with Scott O'Neill as well. And, and I tell you, that book, it is extremely personal. I mean, we both read it. It is a... It's very raw at times um, mm -hmm. for all the reasons that, that he described, given why he wrote it and, and the sort of emotion uh, that went into it, but also very prescriptive. And I loved what he said uh, about the process. I don't know that I've ever really heard the process mm -hmm. described in, in quite those terms. 
Well, as an outsider, it's easy to ridicule the process. We all have friends in Philadelphia. Okay, how long is the process going to take? Yeah. But they stuck to it, and right now they are, you know, riding, uh, you know, riding high. As he said, I looked back down from the top of the hill of the mountain and said it was kind of fun down there. But you know, I would I would climb to the top of this mountain again with a piano on my back. Yeah. So uh, the process is happening. It's been a long time, and I'm, I'm very surprised that people in Philadelphia have put up with it because uh, it, it probably would not work in places like Los Angeles or Boston where they expect to win every single year. Well, and and Philly is such a fascinating town in that way that they have embraced it. I mean, part of it is, and, and we talked to, to Scott a little bit about this offline, actually, you know, this notion that of the storied franchises, certainly in the NBA and, and maybe even across sports, I mean, the Sixers are really up there when you think about, you know, some of the players who, who've been through there, you know, Dr. J and, and Allen Iverson sort of bookmarking it in many ways. But now, you know, with Joel Embiid um, and Ben Simmons, you know, really uh, an amazing uh, – uh, an amazing track record uh, that they have. And, and listen, it, work isn't done yet, but uh, they certainly have, have accomplished a lot. And meanwhile, you know, someone who's got an equally big job, Nina King down at Duke, um, you know, an historic appointment in, in many ways. Um, the first woman of color to hold that job at Duke, um, joining an unfortunately small cadre of women and women of color who are athletic directors um, and, you know, surprise, welcome to the job, the coach <laughs> that is probably the, you know, among the most successful and certainly among the most iconic, he's going to be leaving next year. <laughs> so good luck, um, you know, kind of putting all this together. Well, you know, when I was listening to the, I wrote down some notes and I wrote Frank, candid and honest. And I think that pretty much sums up Nina King. And I love her answer when you said, how are you going to handle the departure of Coach K? And she says, I don't know, because it's never been done before. Yeah. I and mean, that, that's an honest answer. And, and, and she will handle it well. We know that. But I thought that was just, it's refreshing. It's not a canned response. It's not a response that some PR person gave her to, uh, to here's how you're going to answer this question. She speaks from the heart. Well, and I, the other thing that I liked about her is that she gave very honest answers around, you know, sort of two of the big issues of, of mm -hmm. our time. You know, one is compensating athletes and, and how yep. that should be done. Name, image, and likeness is coming on board. Um, whether people like it or not, NCAA needs to act, and, and she made that very clear that you know there need to be some rules of the road, and also equality between men's sports and women's sports. You know, this is a, a woman who chaired the selection committee for the NCAA women's basketball tournament this past year, this season when it all sort of broke out into the open, the gross inequalities, and, and she took that uh, head on as well. So uh, certainly one to watch uh, with Nina King down there. At Duke. Well, you've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. You definitely want to check out the podcast feed because both of those interviews, you only heard just a taste of them. So you want to get the full enchilada in our podcast feed. Catch them when they drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter, Jason Kelly, at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. Looking forward to the return of Michael Barr in the number of the week next week. You can follow me at LynchyWCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs>